Scripture reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed them. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away, so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside, and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About five thousand men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we turn now to your word, be instructing and shaping us, growing us to be more like Jesus, even though we are sinful people, Draw us and use us, even though I am a sinful person. Use me as I preach your word. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have been preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and we've arrived at chapter 9. And in many ways, Luke 9 is sort of this turning point, climactic chapter to the first part of Luke's story. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, up in the north, but now at the end of chapter 9, he's going to turn his face towards Jerusalem, and that begins this long progression towards Jerusalem that ultimately climaxes in Jesus' death. It contains one of his most famous miracles. It contains, for the first time, him predicting that death that is going to come. And it contains the transfiguration, this revealing to the disciples of who Jesus truly is. And alongside all of those other big turning point moments that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, Luke 9 is also important because it marks a shift in how Jesus relates to his disciples. 
From the start, from when he called them, they've been following him. But this chapter is where he starts this very specific program of instruction to help shape and grow the disciples and prepare them for the ministry that they're ultimately going to have in his kingdom. And that's where this chapter then meets us, at least this part of the chapter. Just as Jesus turns to his disciples and begins to specifically instruct them, we are disciples of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be someone who's following Jesus and trying to learn from him and live like him, which is discipleship. We follow Jesus, we try to learn from him and live like him. The whole idea of, I mean, being a Christian, that word means a little Christ. We're trying to see Jesus's life realized in our lives. And so as we think about that process of discipleship, I think there are three things that Jesus would tell us about part of that process here in our text. He would tell us that you, each of us, we are ministers of Christ. He would tell us that Christ ministers through us, and he would tell us that Christ ministers to us. Let me just show you these in the story. First, you are a minister of Christ if you are his disciple. Pick up at the beginning of our text. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So first, Jesus calls the disciples together. And actually, there's an important kind of mental check that I want you to take at that point, because we we, we have this certain image of the disciples, but the fact is that most of them seemed to have families and homes. And in fact, they spent some of their time there, even as they were also following and learning from Jesus. The disciples, at least most of them, were married. We, we know that Peter was married because in Matthew 9, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 how the other apostles, which is what the disciples become, but they would travel around with their wives And Clement, a church father, knew Peter and Philip's kids and talked about them in his writing. And and that's actually a really important kind of mental shift that I want you to have when you think about them. We'll come back to why this matters. But but the disciples lived ordinary lives while they were doing the things we read about in the Gospels. I mean, more broadly, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, also worked as a tent maker. Peter would have had little children running around his house and he would have been caring for and raising them even as he led the early church in Jerusalem. But Jesus calls them together, as he seems to have done from time to time, and he gives them this mission. And that mission, Luke says, is to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's because in many ways that is Jesus's mission statement. Over and over, Luke summarizes what Jesus has been doing as proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing the sick. So Jesus says, all right, you've been traveling with me as I've done this. Now you go do it. Pick up in verse 3. Jesus says to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Which is to say Jesus calls them to go on this missionary journey in a way that teaches the disciples, first of all, to trust in God's provision, that they're not supposed to take money with them for food, they're not supposed to take an extra coat, they're supposed to rely on the hospitality of others. 
And it's probably also there to make clear to the disciples that they're not like the other traveling teachers that existed in their world. There was this sort of, you could make a pretty good living if you were a certain sort of person traveling around in the ancient world and just kind of like teaching and collecting money from people. And so Jesus is calling them to not live like that, but rather to walk forward trusting in God's provision. Now, one note on that specific detail, because sometimes Christians have used this wrongly, those specific commands and that level of not preparing is definitely not a universal command. And we know that because in Luke 22, Jesus explicitly reverses it. He says, do you remember when I told you to do this? And they all say, yeah. And then he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. But that said, the disciples are supposed to go out in this way. And then Jesus also tells them, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Ancient Israelites, when they would travel in Gentile country, which the, the ancient Israelites disliked the Gentiles and saw them as sort of corrupted and evil, when they came back to Israel, it was customary for them to shake the dust of the Gentile lands off of their shoes and so Jesus is saying, in essence, that you're supposed to um, to do the same thing to these Israelite towns that reject my testimony. You're supposed to testify to the reality that they're behaving just like Gentiles. But that said, those are Jesus's commands. And I want the, the thing I want you to notice about that is even though on the one hand, those are probably kind of scary things to do, they're also incredibly freeing. Jesus sends them out to preach the kingdom and heal, and he doesn't say, you've got to get it all figured out, you've got to prepare meticulously, you've got to come up with all these strategies. He just says, no, you go, and you preach, and you heal, and you stay at someone's house when they offer it to you, and when they're ready for you to leave, you move on to the next town, and if they won't let you stay somewhere, then you just shake the dust off your feet. And so then the disciples in verse 6 departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So how does this first part of the story apply to us? We'll start with this question. Is that mission just for these 12 disciples, or is that mission for all of us as disciples of Jesus? Of course, on one level, and we already noticed this, some of the details of this specific mission look different. And even the disciples, right, they don't do this forever. They come back in the next part of the story to Jesus and check in again with him. So it is definitely temporary and specific to them, but it's certainly not just for the 12, because in Luke 10, Jesus does the same thing, but now he has 72 disciples that he sends out on this sort of ministry. And in Acts 1, Jesus gathers the early believers and gives them this mission, which becomes sort of the mission statement of the church as a whole. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus' disciples in this story are learning about the reality that part of their job is to be a minister of Christ, to take the reality of Jesus, his good news and his work, and to minister that to these towns that they traveled to, to the people around them. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, that call to ministry is for you as well. We've talked about this before, but I just, this, this has to be constantly repeated in our setting. Let me just, when you think about the church, who's the minister, right? Who does the work of ministry? 
deeply ingrained in our culture is this idea that the answer is the professionals, that I'm the minister here at Kish, or that it's the paid staff, or maybe a few other people that lead programs or are sort of set aside for that. But read Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So who are the ministers? It's the saints. It's all the people sitting in the pews. It's every single person in the church. I am a minister of Christ because I'm a Christian, but you, if you're a Christian, are also called to be a minister of Christ. And those professionals, I hate that even, that idea, but those, those leaders and the pastors like me in the church, it is not that they are the main ministers. It's instead that their job is to equip you so that you can do that work of ministry and help train you and call you to it and give you tools as you embark on it but you are a minister of Christ. That is true, but we can also struggle with that. We can struggle with it for a lot of reasons. And I'm actually going to speak to the heart of why I think a lot of us struggle with it in just a minute when we see our second truth from this story. But let me just name two other things that I think are kind of smaller struggles to to also just point those out. One is that I think some of us struggle with that idea because we have too narrow a vision for the life of ministry. When we picture the life of someone doing ministry for Jesus, we have this really narrow picture of what that must mean. So again, consider the 12 disciples. Like like we said, they, they don't live this sort of like cloistered, monastic existence. They don't float inches above the ground. They had children. They had spouses. They had jobs, at least in many cases. And, and they did their work of ministry in the midst of all of that. They're ordinary people. They're also not, they don't have seminary training or any of that. I mean, especially in this story, it's worth reflecting on the fact that, I mean, Jesus does not um, call you to minister without equipping you. There is some equipping that you absolutely need before you can start doing ministry. He doesn't meet Peter out in the boat and say, come follow me, and then three hours later say, now go to the towns. They've spent like a year traveling with Jesus and watching him and learning from him. But at the same time, if you've spent some time around the church and you've been equipped in those basic ways and know the core truths of Christianity you're probably actually as well-trained as these 12 are when Jesus sends them out. In some ways, you're even better equipped because you have the Holy Spirit uh, dwelling in you in a way that these disciples don't yet have. Which is to say the life of ministry is actually a life that is messy and integrated. That it's not just what sort of people that are do it professionally, that don't have kids and mortgages and all of those other things. It's not just for them, but it's messy and integrated in a way that can fit into any of our lives. And then a second reason we can struggle with that calling is that we can have too narrow a vision for what ministry looks like. Ministry in, in scripture really boils down to doing two things. And you can see them summarized here as healing, and preaching the kingdom. Healing and preaching the kingdom. Now, obviously, the the healing part and the preaching part are going to look a little different in our location than in these first 12 disciples. But really, that is to say we're supposed to speak Jesus and the good news of Jesus to people, and we're supposed to bless people in the ways that we treat them and by seeking to serve and love them. 
And you have to have both of those things. That's important to say. If you are not preaching the kingdom, but you're not blessing people with acts of love and service, then your words are just going to ring hollow. Are you going to come across as a hypocrite? And if you just go around doing good things to people without proclaiming the good news of Jesus that motivates it, then all they're going to end up thinking is what a nice person you are. That, that, that trying to do the acts of love without also speaking the gospel is actually to rob God of his glory because we're the ones who end up getting the credit. So you have to do those things together. But the way you put those things together, that doesn't have to be dramatic or complicated. It simply means that you act towards people in practical daily works of love, in hospitality, in practical service, in encouraging notes and words. You you practically love people, and then you also speak to those people the reality that you're doing that because of Jesus. And speak in very relatable, normal ways about the ways that he has met you and the work of salvation he's accomplished for you. All of which is to say, ministry is something that you can do with your life, with your abilities. But I think there's a deeper reason we struggle with the call. And that's where I think the second part of this story meets us. So here's the second truth. Christ ministers through you. As you are his minister... He ministers through you. So pick up in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. We'll focus more here in a minute, but Jesus meets the disciples. They tell him all the stuff they did on this trip, and he takes them away. But that doesn't last long. It says when the crowds learned it, they followed Jesus And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now notice here, again, this is Jesus doing exactly what he had just had the disciples doing. He's speaking to them of the kingdom of God and healing those that need healing. And then it says, The day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So apparently the specific place they're located, it's, it's outside of town, it's surrounded just kind of by desert or wilderness, and the disciples say, hey, Jesus, these people, they got to go get hotels. They need food. Send them home for the night. And that seems like a reasonable request on the surface of it, doesn't it? Look how Jesus responds. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, if the disciples' request seemed reasonable, Jesus' here might seem a little crazy, and and we should recognize that, that there's a reason the disciples seem puzzled by it. And there's a reason Jesus is saying it. In John's account of this same event, he tells us that Jesus says this to test them. Now look at how the disciples reply. They say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. So the key to understanding this story is this verse. Here's what you need to recognize. Look at how the disciples process this. Jesus says, you give them something to eat, and what they immediately think is, one, well, how much food do I have? That's not enough. Two, how much money would it take to feed them? We're told in other gospels it would be like 200 days wages. Well, we don't have that much money. Therefore, they think it's not possible. What had the disciples just been doing on their missionary trip? Jesus had sent them out, and he specifically said, 
don't take bread with you, don't take money with you, because God will provide. But now, here they are, and when Jesus says, feed them, what do they immediately look to as the solution? Well, it's bread and money. It is not God's provision. Or to put it another way, in this dialogue, you'll notice nowhere when they present the problem initially or when they try to solve the problem after Jesus tells them to, do they ask Jesus if he can feed the people. Nowhere do they ask him if he will feed the people. They're immediately back to relying on their own ability. And of course, the point of that is to be challenged by what Jesus then does. In verse 16, it says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So Jesus takes these loaves and these fish and he prays and he has them sit down in these groups and he distributes the food to them. And it says they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now one note, some scholars have tried to explain this miracle by claiming that this is a ceremonial meal and that's how he could feed 5,000 people. That it's sort of like when we take the Lord's Supper and everyone just gets a little piece of bread or something. But the fact that there's 12 baskets of leftover makes very clear that that's not what Luke or any of the gospel writers are actually recounting. It's that Jesus somehow multiplied, provided through these seemingly insufficient means more than enough food for this massive crowd. Jesus feeds them all and it doesn't even seem like a stretch to him. And the reason that this miracle is so important, it appears in all four Gospels, I think it's because that's the point they want us to see, that God provides for our needs, both personally but also as we minister to others. That just like on their journey here with this crowd, what the disciples are called to do is to recognize that God is the one that will care for them. Or to put it another way, you'll notice if you paid attention in verse 10, what the disciples tell Jesus about, it says, is they tell him all they had done. But of course, back in verse 1, when Jesus sends them out, it says that he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So on their own, the disciples hadn't done anything, even though that seems to be how they're thinking about what just happened. In reality, Jesus had done all of these things through them. This is the fundamental truth we need as we think about our lives of ministry. It's that we do it not by our power, but by the power of Jesus working through us. Ministry is not ultimately something that you do. It is something that God does through you. And I think one of the biggest reasons we struggle in ministry is because we don't really believe that that is true. We don't really believe that. Let me just try to prove that. Let me just give you one example. This is a conversation I feel like I've had with different people. But as I've talked to folks about uh, ministering to and connecting with people, I've had a few conversations with folks where I, um, where I'll just say like, hey, like, you've got this friend or, you know, or family member that's sort of interested in Jesus. Why don't you just like read the Bible with them? Just read, say, one of, like Luke or John or Mark or Matthew, read one of the gospels, say, with that person and discuss it with them. 
And I know how those people feel when I suggest it, because it's exactly how I felt before I kind of got used to that idea. What they immediately think about is the reasons that that won't work. They think that I can't do that. Why? What are you thinking about? Because you probably feel that way. Well, you're thinking, I haven't learned enough about the Bible. What if they have questions that I can't answer? I'm not, I'm not trained as a teacher. I don't, I don't, I'm not good with words. Those are the things that you would wrestle with in that moment. But here's what I want you to realize is happening. What you're saying is that here's the thing. I'm sitting down and I'm opening God's word with this other person. And my assumption is that what's going to make the difference is me. That the thing that will change this other person is me and not the word of God. Which is, of course, to think that it's us and not God that ultimately does the ministry. Now, yes, I am, I am not saying those, those questions you have, like, absolutely, come, come talk to me. Come, come talk to someone you know who's knowledgeable about scripture and ask them to help you out as you walk into that process. Do try to learn and grow in those skills that you have. But do that recognizing that the word of God is powerful and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that that is the place where the power lies. That if you just open it with someone, you really are giving God the opportunity to minister through you. And again, the reason I want you to feel that is because just feel how freeing that therefore is. Understand, like, I have a job in my ministry, and God has a job. And my job is to seek to do the things he calls me to do in a way that are faithful to him. To do those good works to people, to speak those words of hope to people. My job is simply to seek to be faithful in the ministry that he presents me with. God's job is to change people's hearts, to bring fruit and success, or to not. But, but even if the town rejects you and you just have to shake your, your sandals off, that's not on you either. It's up to God and his power. Or maybe to give you one other image for that. The Bible speaks of us as God's ambassadors, as Jesus's ambassadors. That's one of the images they use for our calling of ministry. Now, if the President of the United States called you up tomorrow and said, hey, I want you to go be my ambassador to Canada, say. Now look, in the first place, you would think that's crazy and you would probably say no, but, but imagine that you went. On the one hand, it is true that you probably have none of the skills of an ambassador. I wouldn't, right? I don't have like a deep understanding of foreign policy or training in uh, diplomatic stuff and negotiations. And absolutely, if you stepped into that role of ambassador, you should work on those skills and try to grow and develop those things. But even the first day that you're on that job, people are going to listen to you. And your words are going to have authority and influence and power. And the reason for that is that there's a real sense in which they're not your words at all. That as an ambassador, it's the United States and its military and its economy and its history. That's the thing that you are representing and speaking for. And that's the power. It's, the, it, it's that power behind you that's then kind of working through you as you seek to do that job. The life of ministry is the same. Jesus ministers through you. It is his power and authority, his word and spirit that accomplish the work of ministry. We are simply called to be his ambassadors 
and bring that power into the places that we live. So that truth is important. But then there's one more that I also think we see in this story. And that truth is that Christ doesn't just minister through us. He also ministers to us. Jesus ministers to us as well. Look at verse 10 again. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So notice, on the one hand, Jesus asked the disciples to do this hard thing, to, to go out and preach in these villages without taking anything with them. But then when they return, he also recognizes the hardness of what they've just done and takes them away, makes space to minister to them. That includes him caring for them practically and giving them rest. And even more than that, that, that includes him caring for them relationally. The biggest thing to recognize here is that it's Jesus taking the disciples to be with him. There's also a deeper hint of that care and ministry of Jesus to us in the account of the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 16, it says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. I think it's no accident that Jesus' actions here um, and the way that Luke recounts them would, for, for any early Christian, stir images of the Lord's table. Now, absolutely, the disciples, they don't know what's coming, right? They, 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 they have no clue. And so in the moment, they're not making that connection. But it's, it's also not an accident that just a few verses later, Jesus is going to predict his crucifixion for the first time. In verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus, as he feeds the disciples and these crowds, is acting out that ultimate work of ministry that he does on our behalf in his body being broken for our sin. And so the point that we should take there is simply that our calling is to look to Jesus, to provide in our ministry for the people we're ministering to, but also that we need to look to Jesus to provide for us. Some of us fail to embark in the life of ministry because we just don't understand that. That's where you need to hear you are called to be a minister of Christ. Some of us fail to embark in it because we are um, fearful and don't understand that God works through us. I mean, some of us just fail to do it because in our sin we don't want to. But others of us, I think, especially in the present, are struggling to do it or failing to do it because we have tried to minister and we found ourselves in places where we are tired or where we are discouraged. Maybe we've tried to love and serve and speak Jesus to people and we feel like we failed. Maybe we've even seen some real successes, but those situations that have been failures, have just they just loom so large that we feel like we can't see any of the ways that God has used us. And friend, if that is you, then this is the truth I want you to hear, that Jesus doesn't just minister through you, he ministers to you as well that he wants to meet your needs and care for your hurts and support you and provide for your heart, even as he calls you to continue to do his work of ministry. He wants you to find rest for yourself in his death 
and resurrection. Let me just name maybe two ways, if you're in that place, that you need to grow in hearing God's calling. Two things that maybe you haven't appreciated or received. One of those is that it's possible if you're feeling really beat up in the life of ministry, it's possible you just went into it not realizing the hardness of the calling. I mean, look, when pastors come out and say, you're called to be a minister of Jesus and go into the world, there's this real temptation we can feel to make it sound too easy, to make it sound too good. Just like, man, the Holy Spirit's going to move through you and everything's going to change. The truth is that there are many hard parts of the life that Jesus calls us to. We will often be beaten up, worn down, and struggle as we engage in the work of ministry. And that doesn't mean that there isn't joy and rest and gladness. There is. I don't want to lose that. But the problem is that we have this tendency to say, is God being faithful to me and through me in ministry? And to measure the answer to that based on how much of that joy and happiness and rest we're feeling at the moment. And there are seasons when there will be none of it. There will be seasons when you, like Jesus, as he embarks on his greatest work of ministry, feel like you're going to sweat blood and weep in the garden and wonder whether God is even there. The test of your ministry is not whether you feel like everything's awesome, whether you feel like you've got this all handled. It's whether God is meeting you and providing you with daily bread. Because that's what he promises to give to us. Not enough for things to be a piece of cake but simply enough bread for us to have nourishment until tomorrow. I mean, if I can just maybe speak personally for a moment. Um, I know a lot of people have asked me about continuing to be a pastor, which is a particular kind of ministry. It's, um, again, I'm not the only minister here, and so I debate whether to use myself as an example. But look, here's the thing. In this season of grief, as we have lost Elizabeth, and as I figure out single parenting and widowerhood and all of that stuff, absolutely it is hard. And absolutely, I do not feel like this is one of those seasons where I'm like, oh yeah, it's it's going great. But the truth is consistently that God gives me enough strength to do what he's calling me to do today. And yeah, some of those days I fall into bed exhausted and discouraged at the end of it, but I wake up the next morning and God gives enough strength there to carry me forward. That is what the experience of God ministering to us at times feels like. But it's real ministry nonetheless, and it does provide us with what we need. And then a second way that I think we can fall into that place of discouragement, a second thing to be mindful of, is we need to make sure that we are consistently seeking to be renewed by Jesus ourselves. That just as we're trying to minister to the world and and know that he ministers through us, we need to make the space in our lives and do the things that provide opportunities for him to minister to us. That means, of course, in part, just taking care of yourself in practical ways, like sleeping enough and exercising. But particularly, I mean, taking care of yourself by making space to experience the presence of God. That's setting aside the space for prayer, for time in his word, for meditation and reflection and encouragement through meaningful conversations with brothers and sisters. Doing those things that help us to experience our communion with God. 
Because that is the place in which we actually find him meeting those needs. Dane Ortland, the author, he said it like this. He says, for all of us, there is an internal bewildering that builds over time when we neglect private communion with God. Who we are and who God is both fade. It is in withdrawal from everything and everyone to be with God that we recenter. It is when we are alone with him that there is least chance for playing games, wearing a mask, hiding our sins, covering our anxieties. It is then that we can most fully open our hearts up to God. Or again, if I can just reflect in this season on that, the truth of that personally. Man, one of the main ways that God provides me with that daily bread is that time when I like, you know, I drag myself out of bed and get a cup of coffee and then I sit down in my recliner and spend time in his word and time in prayer. Or when I fall back into that same recliner at night before bed, try to spend a little more time in his word and time with him. And I don't mean like deep, studious, academic study. And I don't mean these like lofty, great prayers. I just mean sitting and being like, Father, here's where I am. Let me experience your presence and love. And just sitting with him. Those times have provided me with a sustenance that then get me up and help me to move out in ministry each day. So make that space for yourself to be with Jesus and meet with him so that he can minister to you. If I can draw all of that together as we close, if I can sum all of that up, it's this. What I think Jesus would want us to recognize is that part of being a disciple is being a minister. But what that means is that we are called to minister Jesus through Jesus and with Jesus. We're called to minister Jesus through Jesus and with Jesus. So the goal of your life as a disciple is to be that work of ministry. I often use this prayer in my private time before preaching, but but I love how it sums it up. It says, grant me to know that there are two things worth living for, to further Jesus's cause in the world and to do good to the souls and bodies of men. That that is called to be the purpose of our life, to minister Christ in those ways. But we do that through Jesus's power and strength. That it is Jesus who works in and through us to accomplish whatever we accomplish in that. And we're simply called to be faithful and trust him to work. And we do that with Jesus, with him near to us, with him within us, with him going before us, with him reigning over us. We do all of that in the presence of Jesus, even as we proclaim him. Jesus is the power and the provision for us as we minister. Let's labor for him and rest on that truth. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord Jesus, first of all, for the ministry that you have done on our behalf. That in your death, you destroyed our death, suffered for our sins, and rose again to give us this new life that we now enjoy as your followers. That even now you minister at the Father's right hand, having entered into the holy place, praying for us to the Father, Lord. And that you minister yourself to us through your Holy Spirit in our hearts, through your word, through the communion of the saints. Father, thank you for all of the ways that in Jesus you have ministered to us. In Jesus, thank you for all of the ways you continue to care for and support us. I pray that we might walk into the life of ministry diligently and faithfully. 
I pray, Lord, that we would repent of the ways that we so easily don't show your love to people, the ways that we so easily don't speak your gospel to people. I confess that that is a great sin and trust in the ministry of Jesus to cover that, but I pray that you would give us confidence as we begin to turn from that sin and to engage in that calling, that you would give us the confidence of knowing that you are the one who is truly at work, that you are the one who is building up your kingdom, You are the one who is meeting the needs of those that we encounter. And I pray that we would simply open ourselves that you might speak through us and so work your good in the world. Pray this all in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.